This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Mr. Cosby invited me to Sunday breakfast. Hot cakes, eggs, and cereal with no sugar. Barely was I through when he probed into my religious upbringing and beliefs. He invited me to Sunday school, shaved me, and we drove down at the pastor and his wife and his three daughters. The eldest daughter was the prettiest, no doubt, and I behaved quite well for an unbeliever, for an unbeliever, I behaved quite First time I'd been to church in many a year But my old training hadn't been for in vain There wasn't many folks there There was more in jail last night But I've read the Sermon on the Mount These folks believe that the world's about to end The pastor and his wife and his three daughters The eldest daughter was prettiest, no doubt Quite well for an unbeliever, for an unbeliever, I behave quite well. Signs of the times, signs of the times, coinciding with the book of Revelation. Signs of the times, signs of the times, I will lift my eyes up to the hills. Prayed for a little boy of one of the women He had broke his arm and she feared it would be stiff Also for a lady who had heard us singing And wanted us to pray for her husband who was drunk Reverend gave me the book of John to carry As I made my way on my travels His eldest daughter was the prettiest Quite well for an unbeliever, for an unbeliever, I behave quite well. Signs of the times, signs of the times, coinciding with the book of Revelations. Signs of the times, signs of the times, I will lift my eyes up to the hills. I will lift my was Dan Byrne with Unbeliever, uh, you know, just kind of an extension of the show we did last week on um, atheism. 
uh, Mr. Dan Byrne with Unbeliever, a sweet, great song. Uh, I'm here all by myself today in the podcast studio. Uh, Logan is up in Mill Valley right now. He did a show Tuesday night, and he's going to see Mort Saul tonight at the Throckmorton. So, uh, yeah, Mr. Logan's up there, you know, whooping it up. And i am got 42 screens in front of me and trying to figure out which buttons to push. So far, so good. Uh, anyway, welcome, everybody. It is uh, April still, barely, barely April, right? I mean, like the last day of April, right? Isn't tomorrow the first? Oh, my God. So here we are still in April and uh, still alive, most of us. Some of us not, obviously. Some people born today, too. It happens every single day. Uh, spring is summery here this week. Uh, it's been really hot. If you hear bells in the background, it's because I've got all the doors open in the studio here because there's a breeze. And without the doors open, the breeze is not in the studio. And I'm sweaty. And really, you don't want me to be sweaty. That's not fun. That can't be fun. For anybody, especially me. Oh, nice breeze right now. So everyone, welcome. Uh, there's uh, we'll catch up a little bit here on the week, and then we'll go into a little chat I've got planned for the show. I, um, of course, will talk about what's going on in the world outside. Let's talk about Baltimore. <sighs> you know, here's the thing, though, about it is that, I mean, you know, it's this conversation is happening again in America. Clearly, we're needing to have this conversation again and again until we can have the real conversation, which is just the systemic uh, this oppression and prejudice and, the, you know, the system and all of that. I mean, uh, it's I don't want to get into all of that today. The thing I want to get into is the kind of the twist I saw on it this week and the positive twist I saw on it this week, which, um, you know, because first of all, I don't want to get into all of it because I'm a, a privileged white girl. And, I, <laughs> you know, my dad brought me up to respect everybody and especially the African-American community, which we used to call the black community. And I still do. Um, because my dad grew up in that community. He grew up right on the edge of Spanish and Black Harlem up in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And so he really, he, he felt like part of that world, you know, he was also um, Irish, poor, working class. The Irish weren't respected much more than any of the other um, minorities at that time. So, um, but the thing about Baltimore that's been interesting, um, because there's been a lot of the stuff that's the same, but really, and I don't know if it's because there's so much, so many black people in power in that city, or I don't know, I don't know much about Baltimore. Um, but it was really fantastic to just see the the community leaders come out and really decide to get between the protesters and the police and to really mitigate that zone that can just blow up so quickly. Um, uh, because that's kind of how it's set up. It's so black and white that that's <laughs> no pun intended that, uh, you know, it, it can be so explosive and there's so much misunderstanding and, and so much resentment against both sides, you know, I mean, there's 
good apples and bad apples on, in, in every group of people, as Rain Pryor was saying today on her Facebook page. You know, there's there's bad players everywhere. Um, so, but the cool thing was really seeing this community come together, especially during that day. I think it was two days ago where they all you know, had meetings in churches and community centers and out on the street and the festival and protesting and, you, you know, um, exercising their First Amendment rights. Uh, it was very, there was something just heartening about that because it was true leadership. I really, really believe nowadays, guys, that we have to do this ourselves. We have to step up in the most mature way and step into leadership positions um, even if it's a temporary position in your neighborhood or in a moment where you're seeing someone treating someone else poorly or whatever it is, but just bringing our most grounded, mature, enlightened selves to the civic arena. And, um, you know, because politicians, there's, you know, there's, there are plenty of them who come and want to do and be part of public service, but the system is so fucked up now with money that none of them can actually really do that anymore. They have to just play the game so much. And, you know, in every aspect of communal life, whether it's fire department or police department or the utilities or whatever, I mean, we're all, you know, ultimately all these things should be and we should have a say over all of these things and how they're run. I mean, they, it, it is our police department. It is our fire department. It is our government. So um, there was just something really, it just enlivened the leadership geek inside of me. I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I'm a bit of a leadership, quote unquote, leadership geek. I studied it. I have books on it. I, I vision a lot about, you know, leadership being different in business and education and the entertainment industry and, certainly politics. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm very into this enlightened leadership thing, which I won't get into today, but we'll have some people on and we can talk deeper about that. But yeah, so that was my take on the Baltimore thing. Just there was just a slight, you know, shift. And of course, the media picked up on it, too. Thankfully, some of them did. I mean, yeah, the media still did what it does, which is like waiting for protesters to get beaten by policemen with their cameras. But um, they also, you know, let these leaders come out and have conversations. There was the lawyer for the family and he was there with Anderson Cooper at one point and he was uh, talking to the protesters and letting them know that the news on Friday, which actually came out today, you know, letting them know, kind of taking the stakes down about all the, like, don't expect much out of it. You know, don't, here's, here's how the system works. And he was like trying to educate them on like how the system works. Yes, you're outraged. Yes, you have every reason to be mad. And, you know, all of the years of oppression and abuse and all of that, it's, it's all coming to a head. But here's the reality of it, you know, and explaining it to them on the streets and then talking to Anderson and letting him know what he was talking to them about. It was just, I don't know, there was just something about that that was just like, oh, my God, this is so refreshing. Um, and just gave my little cynical part of my heart hope for just moving this conversation forward, even if it's just by a fucking inch, man. So so anyway, that was my take on Baltimore. And um, and then, of course, the other big news this week is Nepal and the earthquake and uh, just... <sighs> it's like, where do you even start with such a poor country? And, and and just, you know, it's, you know, there's the part of you, there's the part of me, okay, that was like my dad, he and I used to talk at this, about this a lot of it, you know, we we're kind of like, news, natural disaster, porn junkies, you know, show me the footage, show me the footage. So, you know, there's that side of it. But then there's this, this 
story of this baby being found yesterday and this guy being found, I mean, after five days under all that rubble and and then this poor country that just does, has no money and, you know, just has no way to rebuild. And I mean, their airport isn't even big enough to give them to get them aid in. And, you know, it's like once again, we're faced as humans, like watching suffering across the planet somewhere and knowing that there's only so much we can do. And yes, you can send your $5 or $25 or $25,000 to some aid thing, which is great and wonderful, but we still have to sit with the suffering of people and natural disasters. You know, I fear it's just going to get crazier and crazier with the, with the planet, the climate changing and um, all of that going down. So, um, yeah, it was just, you know, sitting with a heavy heart with all of that and watching, God, watching, you know, in those ancient buildings and stuff. Oh, just such a heartbreak. So, um, so anyway, um, that's that two things I will not be paying attention to this week, which are up and coming, which is the NFL draft and the Pacquiao Mayweather fight. I could really give a shit about either one of those things. Zero, zero, zero interest at all. <laughs> and I like football. I like to watch football. I do not like to watch the boxing. Do not get it. I just don't get it. There's no part of me that understands it at all. I mean, I'll, you know, it just, yeah, I could never imagine going to a live fight. I'm sure if I did, I'd be the one like screaming, like standing on my chair, screaming like a fucking idiot too, right? It would like ignite some archetypal warrior rage inside of me that comes alive just in that context. <laughs> oh, that would be weird and strange. Okay, so that's that. Um, and uh, I'm just, oh, before we go forward with my guest today, Okay, I signed up for Ancestry.com. I did it a couple of years ago, didn't really get into it. My dad's side of the family kind of the the American part ends very quickly because my grandmother's mother and father, I think, were born in Ireland and my grandfather was actually born in Ireland. So I have to go to the Ireland part of the thing. But, but, but my mother's side of the family, you guys, oh my God, I've been doing this all week long. Every night I do a little bit. So my mother's two names were Hosbrook was her maiden name and her mother's maiden name was Cook. I have followed these two names and these two uh, grandparent and great grandparent ancestors all the way back to the 1600s here in America, up in Massachusetts and in uh, New York and New Jersey. I can't tell you how excited I am. I love American history. I love American revolutionary uh, war history. And I guess one of my ancestors back there was actually a revolutionary war patriot. Um, of course, my husband pointed out that he probably just like put tents up or something like that. But I'm fine with that. You know, we need the people who put the tents up. Um, but I am so excited to know that my ancestors were here for so long, it has just opened a whole different view. I've always related to my dad's side of the family. Oh, the Irish side. And my mom was like, yeah, we're Scotch Irish. I don't really know. Oh my God. We have real, I have real, I have real American ancestors. And um, yeah, and up in New England. And like, yeah, I'm just so excited about this. So if you got any cooks in your family or Hosbrooks, uh, you know, come let me know. We can hang out on Ancestry.com. I'm sure I've got, I've, I just followed those two lines right now. I'm going to follow more and all of the great grandmothers and all that kind of stuff too. 
But um, and we were basically farmers. I mean, who wasn't back then, right? I, I mean, it's not like uh, we were uh, had any kind of position in the legislature or anything like that. We were probably potato farmers, for all I know. Um, but that's that's that that makes sense because I I love potatoes. So it's it's literally in my genes why I love potatoes. Now I get it. So I'm not plugging Ancestry.com. They're not a sponsor on this podcast. I don't get any money. But And I heard they're run by the Mormons. But, you know, hey, the Mormons, fine, whatever. Uh, Logan uh, survived being a Mormon. He's not here to talk about it right now, but he, he survived it. And um, But they do, you know, they do this genealogy thing really, really well. Um, they also baptize people after they die. Did you know they baptized my dad after he died? <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't know how they do that. Uh, we'll have to ask Logan someday how they do that exactly. All right. So here's the deal. I'm going to put on a little music and I'm going to make a phone call. And we're going to connect with our guest, who is Josh Wheeler, who is the uh, executive director of the Thomas Jefferson Center for the Protection of Free Expression. Yes, that is a mouthful. And I am on the board of trustees of this organization. So we're going to talk a little bit about the First Amendment today, more specifically about um, something they call the Muzzle Awards that we give out every year to people who are just egregiously ignoring and un- misunderstanding the First Amendment or stepping on it. And uh, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, all of that free expression and and why it's so important and how's, how's it doing and all of that. So I'm going to put on a little a bit of my friend here, uh, Chand- Chandler Travis, that's what, and um, let you listen to that and uh, make a phone call. I'll see you in about uh, two minutes. Might have them 
take a sec And more of his mm-mm-mm Damn it She was totally whipped Boy, that's what she said That's what she said That's what she said That was Chandler Travis with That's What She Said. And uh, very, very happy to have my friend and colleague on the line, Mr. Josh Wheeler, who is the executive director of the Thomas Jefferson Center for the Protection of Freedom of Expression. Are you there there? Are you there there? Can you hear us, hear us? I am. <laughs> I can hear you, and I am here. Oh, good. Yes, and we can hear you, too. This is all a very good thing. I've pressed all the right buttons today. It's very exciting. <laughs> so um, so I was, telling, I was telling the audience that um, what happens is uh, I'm on the board of trustees of the, of the center, and you're the executive director, and we were going to talk a little bit about the First Amendment today, but more specifically about something called the Muzzle Awards. Um, so if you want to describe a little bit to the listeners what, this, sure. what these Muzzle Awards are and, and, and why, you're, why we do this. Why we do this, the, the, the technical term or the formal term is the Jefferson muzzle. Um, they are an award that nobody wants, basically. They are a dubious distinction that the, the center gives out every year in April around the birthday of our namesake, Thomas Jefferson, on April 13th. And these are awards that honor the more ridiculous or egregious affronts to free speech that have occurred in the past year. So this is, as I said, this is an award you don't want to get. Um, <laughs> the, purpose, <laughs> the, the purpose of the award, it, 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 there's several, and I think different people view them differently. My take on them is that the muzzles are a kind of fun way to to remind people that we have to be vigilant in our protection of First Amendment rights, that too many people think take the First Amendment free speech for granted, and they assume because we have a First Amendment that speech is always protected in this country. Well, in fact, affronts to free speech occur every day in this country, and often they are not rectified. People don't take them to court to, to challenge and defend their rights. And the muzzles are a way of hopefully informing the public that these affronts do take place and that we all need to be vigilant in standing up to them. Yeah, and um, yeah, and people, um, yeah, you know, it's so, it's so interesting. When I studied the First Amendment uh, many moons ago at UCLA, I took a First Amendment class and it was really, it was, I, I just, I so recommend every citizen should, should take a class like this because I never really understood all the different ways in which um, speech can be infringed and, and what speech really is. 
you know, that it's not just words and talking. <laughs> right. And that there's... Yeah, that's... Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, they, hence, hence our name, that we're not the Center for the Protection of Free Speech, but we're the Center for the Protection of Free Expression. Um, that uh, And the Supreme Court, years ago, basically decided that the First Amendment protects not just words, but the expression of ideas. And you can express an idea in all sorts of ways, besides just uh, verbally and through words. You can express it in terms of conduct. You can express it in, in, uh, in the way you, even the way you dress, uh, in various artistic uh, uh, formats. And so it really is a question about is this the expression of an idea and whatever in whatever form and if we f- feel that it is the expression of an idea and that it's the idea that's being uh discriminated or attempted to be restricted well then the first amendment comes into play and and what is your i mean and then the you know the, the supreme court a few years ago um said that giving m- donating money to politicians is speech um, and it's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an expression and um, that it's protected. And, and it opened up with Citizens United, this huge floodgate of money into the political system. Um, you know, you and I are both pretty, I mean, that's why we're part of this, <laughs> why we're part of the center. You know, we're people who like really defend even unpopular speech, but the people's right to have that speech. Um, but this one has always felt I I I, I have a lot of un- discomfort with this and and don't agree with that version and that definition of speech and and how does it sit with you as a scholar and a lawyer and 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 how have you had to to deal with that? Well, first off, if if any of my family is listening, they're going to be laughing hysterically that you call me a scholar. Um, <laughs> they, 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 I think they. That will be a source of great amusement. I am an attorney, but I don't know how scholarly I, I am. I, you know, this kind of ambivalence or uh, over campaign finance, it really is interesting because of all the issues that that I've seen and dealt with in the 20-some years that I've, I've been working with the center and working exclusively on free speech issues, this is the one that divides, is, is the most divisive among free speech advocates. Um, um, one of the things we pride ourselves at the center, and and as you know from working with this, is we really approach uh, speech matters in a nonpartisan manner. I mean, we go after the political left, the political right, and that's necessary because censorship doesn't have a common political origin. It it can come from all over the political spectrum, and our board of trustees is made up of. Uh, a group of people who, uh, who hold remarkably different political views, and yet they always agree with that that premise that First Amendment issues are nonpartisan or should not be a partisan issue. Yep. And they're always united. That's a long way of saying, however, that on on Citizens United and the idea of, of campaign finance regulation, this is the issue that seems to to really <coughs> cause cause some consternation in terms of finding what is the First Amendment argument here. And I think there are legitimate arguments on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, what I think the court 
and ultimately the view that the center probably accepts is is that it's not about money. I think that's the mistake when people say, oh, speech is not, I mean, money is not speech. But it's about how we, how money can be transformed into speech. The, the actual statute at issue in Citizens United basically said that, okay, if you're on a, in a particular kind of group, organization, um, you are not allowed to spend money on political ads, on electioneering, um, and 60 days before an election or 30 days before primary, I may have those reversed. And that's really the time when speech should be the most protected, if you will. Yes. Um, that people should be having the opportunity to um, speak um, their mind express and express themselves on right. political views. And for us, there's the other part of this is for the for the public to receive these ideas and hear this kind of debate and discussion. Now, none of that is to say that we uh, don't see the tremendous problems that the infusion of money has caused uh, to our political system. It, it, it is tremendous, and it, it, it maybe is uh, to the point of, and many would argue, almost breaking down our uh, political system. Um, but I think, and I don't know what the solution is, I'm just not sure that the solution is censoring or limiting the ability of people to, or, or even organizations, to express themselves um, through political ads. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think back to before the Reagan era when broadcasters were required to um, air... Um, Opinions on both sides, you know, the fairness doctrine and um, and how the broadcasters were supposed to be, you know, because they're borrowing the airwaves, they were supposed to allow people um, access to to express themselves uh, politically, whether it's debates or, or PSAs and things like that. And so it, it seems like that at some point, this pendulum, hopefully will will reach you know one side to the point where there is some need for redress and that we can you know because there's always this dance between you know i mean that's how the that's how all these constitutional rights work there's always a dance between you know freedom and restriction and freedom and restriction and you know it seems like of course everyone should have the right to have um political ads or, or speech, you know, about about politicians or, or about issues. But it seems like what money does is it, it doesn't level the playing field, you know, that if it's, it's if anything, it's made the playing right. field completely unequal. And so maybe hopefully there will be some, <laughs> some sort of way to create some equality back in the system. That's what's, I think, frustrating to people. And I think that's also the the First Amendment argument on the other side, the other side against uh, um, uh, the, the Citizens United mm-hmm. that, that this money, rather than equalize the playing field, it gives one side a, a, a decided advantage, so much so that the other side can't be heard. Yeah. And yeah. That, that, is, that is a huge problem. Um, and I, I have no idea what the, the, the answer to, to that is. 
Um, the fact is, I do think our political system is almost broke, and, and broken, broken, not broke. Yes, uh, it's, not, it's not broke. <laughs> notice the irony of that statement there. Uh, is broken because there's just too much in, in infusion of money that, you know, people elected to office, their top priority is then to be reelected, and that means yeah. spending most of their time raising, raising uh, money. Yeah. Now, again, I... I I see it, and maybe it's easy for me to, to see it this way. I see a difference between First Amendment issue and and that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just not sure that campaign finance is the regulation. The other thing I would say, Kelly, is is this debate seems to be hijacked. The fact of the matter is, I don't know anybody who's a free speech absolutist who who says there should not be any restrictions yeah. on on speech rights. In fact, every decision on the First Amendment that you read, you'll see, it'll probably begin with a little preamble that talks about the First Amendment protects speech, but it's not absolute. And there are categories of speech in which the court has said these categories, there is no protection for the First Amendment. Now, right. we can argue about some of those categories where we think they're right or not, but the fact is that's what they are. And essentially what the court has done is... is in, in past years is looked at these situations and said, you know what, the cost is just too great here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the societal cost, and therefore we are going to make an exception to First Amendment protection. Maybe that's the way that campaign finance will eventually go. Yeah. That, um, but I, I think it's a mistake to say that it's not a speech issue. Um, um, but I, I would rather have a much more honest debate, which says, you know, it is a speech issue, but maybe this is an area in which we want to restrict speech. Yep, yep. That's, but that's, yeah. a, that's a debate for others to have. Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily my view, but I think that's one that, that I, I would enjoy a more uh, open and honest debate in that, that sense of the issues. Yeah, absolutely. But this sounds incredibly in- interesting, and I'm sure is putting your... Your your listeners to sleep. Oh, I have very um, very smart, <laughs> fascinating listeners. So you know. Well, that's that's true. And they're you know, and they're if listening to you, they have to be. Oh, that's very very nice of you. So, so I was thinking about this whole politician thing because one of the muzzles um, we gave out this year was to um, Peoria, Illinois Mayor Jim Artis, and. Oh. <laughs> and yeah. and what I love about it is if 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 you go onto the tjcenter.org website you can you can read the whole list of muzzles and all of this kind of stuff but this is an issue where and he's not the only one this year where politicians really tried to control the online conversation about who they are um and, and um and did it in ways that was just so, so egregious and and I love how this starts it says Harry Truman is widely credited credited for saying about politics quote if you can't stand the heat then get out of the kitchen End quote. This past year, there was a plethora of politicians who apparently never learned the late president's warning that politics requires a thick skin. Instead, they responded yeah. to admittedly annoying but fairly typical incidences of public service as if they were personal attacks. And um, uh, I just I mean, there's this one here that I just going to bring up. Uh, Congressman Steve Stockman, who in a campaign for the U.S. Senate brought a defamation suit 
against Texans, quote, this is a, a name of a group, Texans for a Conservative Majority, because the group issued campaign ads noting that Stockman had been jailed several times, facts that Stockman himself admitted on numerous occasions to multiple newspapers. So this guy, I mean, how do people have the gall <laughs> to do you know, that? Just every year, every year, I think I've seen it all, and I'm not going to be surprised. And sure enough, somebody does, well, not only one or two, but usually uh, a number of, of people just surprise me and 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 what they do. I, there was another one that we didn't actually give the muzzle to because this guy at least probably very quickly heard from a lawyer that said, no, no, that's wrong. But an elected official who didn't like the way, in Maryland, who didn't like the way the local newspaper was portraying him, so he threatened to sue them for unauthorized use of his name, <laughs> that if they ever <laughs> wanted to report, uh, uh, use him in a news story about his voting, that unless they got permission from him first, wow. he would sue them wow. because he didn't give permission to use their name. Um, and no. it's just like, are you serious? Right. It's really? like, what? and at least with this guy, at least with this guy, he quickly got some advice. But the the one that we actually gave the muzzle to, as you said, the mayor of Peoria, Illinois. Ah, uh, <laughs> apparently somebody set up a parody Twitter account. And from my understanding, uh, you know, there are all sorts of parody accounts of of, of oh. celebrities, of uh, thousands, of thousands, politics. thousands of them. And this one was even labeled, this is a parody yeah. <laughs> of, of this guy. And it, and it wasn't it was even the guy's name. Of, it was just Peoria Mayor. It wasn't even, yeah. you know, Mayor well, Jim Artis or anything. You know, the advice I often give to, to most people when they, they ask, they, they come to me from the other side and ask me, is, is this protected? What can we do about this? Mm. And my advice is usually... Just let it blow over. <laughs> Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. And this is this is a perfect example of this because this this mayor used the power of his office to launch an investigation into the the gentleman behind this to find out the identity of him, to to get his name and his address, and then had a the police search his house um, and confiscated computers and uh, other various items all of which came to naught because even his own police chief said, uh, Mr. Mayor, you know, there's nothing illegal here. Uh, we can't do it. But as a result, this is what I love on this one, as a result of all of this action which became publicized, whereas before there was one parody account of the mayor, suddenly there are about 25 parody <laughs> accounts of the mayor. Whereas if you just left it alone, it yep. would have blown over, no one would have paid attention. <laughs> but now, you know, he, he's got a whole association of parody accounts uh, uh, that he has to deal with. Instant karma. you got to love it. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, it's like, it's it's like I, I I always ask myself like what country do these people think they're living in? He can use the power of the state to protect his reputation. I mean, it's like you know East Germany Stasi or something. Yeah. It's really it's yeah. a, it's frightening and and like you were saying earlier at the beginning, like not everyone knows that they're protected. You know, it's like some people. Right. let the state abuse them in this way you know and and don't are are you know ignorant of their of these rights 
Um, that's right. Well, that's that's a perfect segue into another one of our muzzles this year, which was to a prosecutor, district attorney, in Bedford County, Pennsylvania, which he went after. You know, the fact is. 14-year-old boys, and I say this having once been a 14-year-old boy, we're basically idiots. You know, we're, we're hormones, we're hormones with feet, and we do a lot of stupid things. And this 14-year-old kid in Bedford, Pennsylvania, he did a stupid thing, whereas he went up, there's a, a church had a statue of a praying Jesus, of a kneeling and praying Jesus it's like on a, 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 And so my viewers, so listeners know, it's like a life-size, you know, size yeah, version exactly. of Jesus praying. Well, this, this, this kid thought it would be funny if he posed in front of the, the statue, the kneeling Jesus, in a way that made it look as if Jesus was performing a lewd act yes. on, on this young man. Yeah. He didn't, now here's the thing, he didn't deface, no. he didn't do any kind of destruction, he just posed in front of this. Mm-hmm. And then, <laughs> going on with his, is it to advertise his his stupidity, or effort, he posted these pictures of his posing in this manner on Facebook. Of course he did, because well, that's what we somehow, all do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe that's offensive, maybe it's stupid, but Lord knows it is not illegal. Right. It should not be criminal. And yet, there is a statute in Pennsylvania. It's one that has never, it's hardly ever been used, certainly not in the last 10 or 15 years, making it a crime to desecrate a venerated object. And almost that's almost exactly the same wording that was the issue that was for the statute that was involved in the famous case involving the burning of a flag, uh-huh. in which the Supreme Court held that you cannot punish somebody for that. And the idea, that's a, a, a good case to talk about conduct versus speech. Right. The prosecution in that case wasn't because somebody was burning a piece of fabric. The prosecution in that case was because they are offended by the idea of what burning a flag represents. Mm-hmm. And that's what turns conduct into speech. Mm-hmm. And, and that statute essentially is, was, as I said, the exact same language as the one here. This prosecutor knew it. He knew that it, he wasn't going to be able to, to actually bring charges against this kid, but he did bring charges as a means of getting this kid to agree to um, uh, plead guilty to a lesser offense, essentially, and, and do all this community service and uh, stay off the Internet and a variety of other punishments. But the fact of the matter is he's a government official sworn to uphold the Constitution, just as any other government official is. He should not be going around using a statute that he knows is unconstitutional to try and threaten people uh, because their speech offends his own personal sensibility. And so I have a question here. So why is a statute like that? I mean, it's clearly unconstitutional. You know, the Supreme Court said it was. Why is it even still on the books? Why can they even, like, use it? Is it I don't... How does that work? Well, because there are lots of laws. There are lots of laws that are on the books that are unconstitutional. But the... the they, that particular statute in, in Pennsylvania, it 
itself had never been challenged constitutionally. I see. One one way in which they stay on the books is because a lot of the times prosecutors uh, will say, "Oh, well, this is obviously unconstitutional," so I'm never going. It never gets applied. I see. So it never gets challenged in the court. I... It just sort of gets forgotten. I see. I, I see. I mean, it, we even had, we even had a um, a statute in Virginia. Um, much like that, and I got a call from a local prosecutor, and he said, "I can't, I can't prosecute anybody under this. Can I? This is unconstitutional." I said, "Yeah, it, it is," and mm-hmm. and so they didn't, they didn't bring the, the the charges. So a lot of these things are just remnants of the past, and they just just stay on. This particular prosecutor knew that, and he knew of the statute, and he sort of said, "You know what?" But this gets to the point you were making. He, I think he gambled on the fact that he didn't think that this kid knew. Yeah, what his constitutional rights and, were, and I'm sure he and was just was trying to get easier. he was trying to get some votes for his next election from the conservatives. Exactly, exactly. And he tried to turn it into a partisan issue, which was really interesting because he said, "Well, I know when a bunch of left wing liberals are coming after me um, to criticize me, I know I must be doing something right." <laughs> and what was very interesting was then. Uh, a columnist for the Washington Times, a very conservative columnist, and a self-proclaimed conservative, uh, wrote an editorial saying, hey, I'm a conservative, and, and I certainly am not supporting what you, you're doing here. This is a re- In fact, I think he said something along the lines of, of um, and we quoted this one in our in our, our thing. It's not just liberals who are upset with Mr. Higgins. It's also conservatives like me who respect the First Amendment, nice. as well as anyone who has the sense to understand the difference between a teenage prank and an actual crime. <laughs> and it's the perfect example of how this is. You know, speech is not a partisan issue. It's a, it it should not be a partisan issue. Yeah. And this prosecutor seemed to forget that. <sighs> <laughs> it always yeah i know i know well, it, yeah well this year it did seem you know people often ask are there any themes and and this year it really was sort of along the lines of there just seemed to be a lot of politicians with very thin skins because there were so many examples of people trying to punish the press for things that they said about that politician mm-hmm. and you would just think in this day and age that, you know, no, you know, we can't, we can't, you can't do this. You can't go after um, a person because they hurt my feelings. And, and it's like, it goes back to Harry Truman, you know, yes, people are going, your feelings are going to get hurt if you're a politician. You need to, you need to develop a thick skin. Yeah. And, and the best way to, and I was just, go ahead. Well, I was just wondering that if, you know, uh, because there was so many, uh, there's so many, it seems like there's a whole flush of people, especially like from the Tea Party right, who have come in, you know, they've brought these people into politics now and into these positions. And they're, you know, these aren't people that have come up in the system and have learned how to have thick skin and stuff like that. They've kind of been thrown. And then, of course, the age of social media, it's not just, you know, it's not just coming at you occasionally, you know, if, if you're uh, any kind of a public figure and you're, you know, you're going to be <laughs> hammered from every direction now. So it probably yeah, feels a lot more difficult even. That's that's exactly right. That's a great point. And because we gave out eight muzzles this year, seven of the eight of them had to do 
uh, with social media in one way or another. Yeah. And I do think you're, you're right. I think it's sort of changing the game a little bit. That whereas before, yeah, you might have to take, put up with a you know a newspaper article here or there, but now with social media, <laughs> you just get bombarded with it. And um, the answer is these guys have just got to develop a thicker skin, not yeah. not uh, go after yeah. the power of their office to. Uh, speech they don't like. And there's a, there was a couple that um, uh, actually do have to do with social media and um, people who work at, um, one works at a com- community college and the other one was a university, and they both were punished for their speech online. And... Um, uh, which, it's just amazing to me. I mean, these are just people just having opinions and... Uh, <laughs> Um, so I wanted to bring up kind of, you know, the university issue of generally where it was born and bred is political correctness. And it, it feels like these, 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 especially these two muzzles around the university issues, one of which was a professor who was given, you know, a new job and he was going to move across the country and he like got rid of his old job, his old teaching job and everything. And he was very, um, opinionated about, um, Israel and protecting and, and, you know, protecting Israel and, um, was fervent about it online. And, um, the, uh, university of Illinois said, um, yeah, this really is too, too much. You know, we don't like the tone of your tweets. And they did that. They they basically tried to make a distinction between what they said. Oh, we didn't we didn't withdraw our offer of employment because of what you said. We're withdrawing it because of the way in which you said it. it your tone uh, was not appropriate, and it just how they're trying how they can split that hair. I don't know, or they think that they can do it successfully. Yeah, this case was just. Unbelievable, it, because this and, and this shows how sometimes these cases have very real world consequences. Mm-hmm. And and for people who think, oh well, it's just a you know, you just told somebody they couldn't say something. Well, the effects can be much more much more severe. This guy, as you said, he was given the job offer. He was in October. He accepted it. He made all these arrangements with the school about teaching, about book assignments, about class assignments. He gave up his house. His wife resigned from her job, all preparing to move to uh, Illinois from Virginia, in fact. And but he he is a tweeter. He yep. has a Twitter account, and this was he was very critical of how Israeli was treating. Uh, was responding to uh, various circumstances in the Gaza Strip that right. that, that summer. Yeah, and um, it it's evidence from from a FOI request that a number of pro-Israel supporters were not, and who also happened to be significant donors to the university, mm-hmm. expressed their yeah. uh, disillusion and their opposition to this man being hired by the university, even though it had already been been made to him. And, and they withdrew the offer about a week and a half before he was supposed to start teaching. The man now had to move back in with his parents. 
his wife and his child are now living with his parents because he's got no income, no home, and uh, no immediate job prospects. Now, could you clarify this? Because, you know, there's been some other incidents like this. I mean, so this is a University of Illinois. So this is a public institution. Um, it's not the government per se. Um, and so therefore, does is that what makes it a First Amendment? I mean, like if a, if a corporation, if you yes. like, okay, so that's that, that is what makes it a First Amendment issue. That's, that's, that's essentially, that is what makes it a First Amendment issue. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize this. A lot of people do assume that free speech and the First Amendment mean exactly the same thing. It doesn't. In order for the First Amendment to apply, there has to be some nexus, some relation to government. Okay. Uh, the First Amendment does not, in a way, the First Amendment doesn't actually give us affirmatively a right of free speech. It basically is a check, a limit on the government's ability to limit our speech. Right. The, the actual language is, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. If you don't have Congress or the government, right. as it's been interpreted, there's no First Amendment violation. And we are always getting calls about uh, acts of, of censorship, but done by a completely private organization, like in this, say, an employer who fires somebody because of political views, expressing views that the employer disagrees with. Well, right. there may be other right. issues there, but it's not a First Amendment one. Right, right. And so does this professor... Um, if he if he had the means, uh, he could fight this decision based on First Amendment grounds. And do you know if he is doing? Oh, that? he is fighting it. Oh, good. <laughs> he is fighting it, and and he is suing uh, the university. And if although I think anyone who makes predictions about legal cases is, does so at their peril. <laughs> but my personal my prediction on this was is that the case will eventually settle, and he will. Be given uh, his job a, back, a significant settlement. Uh, yeah. Settlement, well, not, yeah, not okay. Not job, but a significant settlement, yeah, 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 so. okay, yeah, yeah. It's it's so interesting. So, um, yeah, because you know there, because and it, I I wonder how like social media will shape and change, and how we'll have to address it in the courts. You know, like what kind of cases will be coming up around this kind of stuff to, um, to discuss. Well, that's. You're exactly right. It's changing. It's changing. Um, it's certainly causing us to have to stop and think. And in fact, there's a case that we were involved in that we filed in that the Supreme Court has yet to hand down a decision on this term, but it, it probably will do. My guess is towards the very end of the term in, in June that involves the making of threats online. Um, and what what does that constitute? And this is a case involving a, a, a man who was separated, I think actually divorced from his ex-wife, from, divorced from his wife. Um, and uh, there was, it was not a, let's say it was not an amicable separation. And he posted a number of things on his Facebook page, coming back to this, that he didn't, that were, that were actually private, but that he didn't intend for his wife to see. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but she got wind of them anyway, and there are some pretty pretty bad statements uh, there. Mm-hmm. But what that issue what that issue raised is the Supreme Court 
although it's it, it's based, it's said that threats are not protected under the First Amendment. That's one of those categories that just does not receive First Amendment protection. Right. But the question then arises: Well, what constitutes a threat? Mm-hmm. Because you know, if, if I borrow your car and I bring it back to you on empty, and you say to me, "Josh, I'm going to kill you," is that a threat? Right. No. I mean, you're clearly you're, you're not really threatening. Me, right. But and, it, it's you know. And, and there's also it is. And there's also uh, something about you know imminence that it has to be like. You know, you feel like you are, like it could happen, right? Like if someone's screaming in your face, <laughs> that yeah. threat, you know, it's yeah. like, well, that's dangerous right now right. in this moment. And so how do we take into account all of those things in terms of defining a threat? What this case will turn on, we think, is the issue of, of this, is does the person who makes the threat have to intend to make you feel threatened? Mm-hmm. In other words, like a, in, there are lots of crimes we have like you know, like that. You know, there are various degrees of murder, right? And uh, often separated by the intent of the person uh, committing the act. If the person intends to kill you, first degree murder, then that's a more severe penalty than somebody who kills you by accident. Um, and so the question on this case is: Does the person have to intend to make you feel threatened, or do you judge it from the point of view? of a, an objective, reasonable person. And in other words, would a reasonable person interpret that those words as a threat? And the lower court in this case adopted the reasonable person standard. Um, my, Our argument, and this comes back to the social media, raises a big issue on this, is what is a reasonable person today? <laughs> you know, the, in, right. the Internet, the Internet... You know, so many people talk about it being this. It is, and it's true. It's it's provided us tremendous access to more information than we've ever been able to access in the past. Um, all of us as individuals. The problem is, so many people don't utilize it that way. In addition to giving us access to more information, it also gives us the ability to find out, find and identify people who think the same way we do. Mm-hmm. And what happens is more and more people are going to these groups, and the only people they really communicate with are these like-minded individuals or groups. And so rather than having uh, a much better informed, well-rounded society, we're, we're getting these homogenous groups that have very different uh, attitudes and ideas, and what would be reasonable to one group would not be reasonable to another. Right. Um, wow. Fascinating. A good example of that is, you know, rap music world or video gamers. There's a lot of violent content and language in in uh, yes in rap music. Obviously, a lot of th- that um, might seem very scary to someone not familiar. Right. With with that world, but in but to the folks within that community, it's not meant as a threat at all. And so our argument in this case is that in order to protect free speech, the standard should be that the person has to have the intent to threaten you. Because remember, we're talking about speech. Right. Oh, the only crime here is speech, and we get very nervous when you start throwing people in jail for speech alone. And therefore, our feeling is that the government should have to prove more 
than just the the speech. They should also have to go. You have to prove that the person intended a criminal a criminal uh, effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So the burden is on is on the state then to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. this is going to get yeah, I think this is going to get more and more interesting and we're going to find these lines and and yeah, and we are it's so interesting how we're redefining the word just the the reasonable person based on this because it is it, it is it is becoming a different world and uh yeah, it's it's just absolutely fascinating. So, um yeah, this is great. This is great. Um I've been uh thinking, uh, I was talking earlier about the uh, protests in Baltimore and just all the protesting that's been going on this year around yeah. uh, p- police brutality, especially. But, um, but this whole delicate balance, you know, you see, it, you see it whenever these protests go down, this delicate balance between allowing the protesters to have the room and the space to protest and to and to have the right to you know dissent against what's going on in the world and this sense of keeping order and law and order and and protective public safety and all that kind of stuff and i was talking before before you came on to the show about watching these leaders in baltimore get between the protesters and the police to be this buffer zone and to to almost be translators between these two groups that have no idea how to talk to each other. <laughs> right. They're like from two different worlds, and therefore these community leaders who are who you know have a, a longer view of protest, and a lot of them are civil rights veterans and things like that, and of course you know grew up and are, are children of of people who marched you know for civil rights in the sixties and the fifties, and. Um, and watching them have to translate to each side what is going on and what is needed and um, and how and kind of how differently, even though that first night there was obviously some violence and some things that happened, but the next day, how this leadership organically came into this void and said, we're doing this differently now. This is not going down. We're not going to have the militarized police versus our young, our youth, you know, our angry youth. And we're not going to watch them clash and, and harm each other and, and, con- and, and confuse the conversation e- even more. So I, I just, you know, I was talking about how heartened I was by that and that it's, it's still not a perfect world and there's still a lot going on. And of course, the, the actual issue in Baltimore is, is unfolding and who knows how, how it'll end. But, um, but it just seemed like there was a bit of an, an evolutionary step of conversation going on because that's ultimately what this First Amendment is about, is about a conversation between the people and the people they've elected to represent them. And um, we do it through voting and we do it through many different ways. But one of the ways we do it also is we take to the streets when we don't feel like we're being listened to anymore. Right. And, yeah, and my gosh, I I would not want the the job of the mayor of Baltimore or anyone in that situation because nope. on the one hand they they they've got to be sensitive to the First Amendment rights of, of of the people to be able to protest to be able to um, uh, express uh, themselves in a peaceful manner and on the other hand though at what point do they do they have to stop it when 
step in when it's going beyond peaceful protest. Right. And then they get yelled at by everybody else who says, you know, <laughs> you let it get out of hand. Yeah, yes. Um, yeah, well, exactly. You know, it it's easy to, to, to armchair quarterback, yep, yep. Um, you know, and, and, it, and frankly, it'll be groups like us that will come in and say, oh, well, you jumped the gun. You, <laughs> you, you resorted to these, these um, uh, techniques, repressive techniques too soon. These people were just protesting. Right. But it is, it is a tough, a tough situation. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and there's, um, and, you know, I, and there's the, and, you know, there's the thing about, you know, there's this really interesting fine line, which is, you know, when you really feel like, you know, even peaceful protest, you know, I mean, and certainly in in the African American community with Martin Luther King and all of that, there was this, this nonviolence track towards it, you know, but then there was also the Malcolm X tract, which is the, you know, any means necessary. And there was always the kind of the danger of that. And, you know, and, and this country was forged on, you know, people taking up arms to, to change the direction of things. And um, so it's, it's really interesting, you know, when, when, when the people feel unheard, um, you know, to what extent do they feel like they have to go to be heard? And that's, that's the interesting dance that I think we're finding ourselves in. And especially in, in these black communities, um, they really, really are tired of being invisible and unheard and, uh, and just feel like they can't take it anymore. And it's really understandable. And, uh, and so you, you know, it's like your heart, it's like my heart gets split into like four different, quadrants with all of this stuff you know it doesn't know who to you know where to be where to be with anybody so intense very intense yeah and you know bringing it back again i think i and maybe this is a is a good thing um you know a lot of this attitude um um towards the police you know seeing seeing the police as uh that that many african-americans do see as as um, a force to be feared as opposed to a force to be uh, as protective. Right. Um, I think I think the entire population is becoming more aware of that because of social media. I think it was easy for and even even if we want to go back just to the to the time of the O.J. Simpson mm-hmm. trial. I mm-hmm. remember how split. And how many uh, in the white community were so appalled by that verdict, and then also, but by seeing those shots of largely African American um, uh, groups who cheered the mm. result, right? And I think there was just basically, uh, it's like, how could anybody feel that way? Well, I think social media is changing that, <laughs> and now we're being <laughs> at least. People in, who are not in the African American community are at least beginning to understand, because of social media, why they do see the, yes. the police force yeah. uh, often as, as, as something to be feared. I mean, my gosh, you know, we're getting more and more reports that where was it in South Carolina? Was it Charleston, South Carolina? The the policeman shot the the, the gentleman oh. running away in the yes. back, yes. and it's the thing. And, and then, you know, the incident in Baltimore, we're all becoming more and more aware of these incidents yep. that I think we were largely ignorant of before. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, 
and maybe that will lead to greater understanding. That's that's what we can hope. Yes, yeah, ultimately, I, I hope so too, absolutely. Well, Josh, thank you so much for coming by and um, talking about this and reminding me and the world and just, you know, how important this issue is, the First Amendment, and just how intricate it is. I mean, it's one of those fascinating things. It's it's not black and white, and it's not left versus right. Uh, it's a it's a it's a really complicated, complex, but juicy um, area of of our of our American life, and uh, and and certainly an essential one. <laughs> so, um, I really appreciate you coming by and hanging out here and oh. and and educating oh us God, a little. My, it well, I don't know about, but it's my pleasure as a one just to talk with you anytime but to uh to to share this and and i hope if people have any questions about or want to continue this discussion if they want to to write us at the tj center as you said our website's tjcenter.org and if they want to learn more about uh how we go about trying to protect free expression uh they can they can do so by the website as well we do we do things other than the muzzle award yeah 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 <laughs> they do they do we do a lot of great work and not only briefs for um you know actual court cases but there's a free speech monument and the muzzles and all sorts of things and uh yeah and also follow them on twitter at tj center uh, I think is what it is, and um, yeah, follow. Look, look at my feed. I think it is an org. I think you're right. Yeah. I think it's TJ Center Org. Yes. Um, so yeah, and so th- thank you, Josh, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you, Kelly. All right. Good night. Talk to you. Take care. Okay. Good night. Bye bye. So I hope that was okay with everybody. If you're on your um, treadmill right now, going, what the hell are they talking about, and why? I'm just a huge geek about this stuff. I find it to be really important. I find it to be fascinating. I don't know if you guys do. I know we took a little bit of a different track here today. Um, But I wanted to bring it back around to the personal and the importance of just free expression. And and so how I wanted to bring it back to the personal is in, in really you know, being able to look at in how do we censor ourselves, you know, not just our speech, but in our lives in general, you know, what are we keeping ourselves from doing and living into? Um, how are we creating a chilling effect on our on our own selves just with kind of, you know, limits and and things that we've thoughts we have and, and rules we learned as children that possibly no longer uh, really apply in our lives anymore. Um, you know, I mean, this is something I've been dancing with uh, for many, many years, but especially these last seven years since my dad was gone and, and really finding, you know, uh, always kind of coming up against an edge where I feel like I don't have the right to say something out loud even or express myself and and then stepping over that. I mean, even just having this podcast at the beginning, I, I didn't, seven years ago, I didn't think that I had a right to say anything or or... Um, or, you know, or had a point of view, really. I mean, I knew I had a point of view, but I thought, oh, well, no one, no one really cares. No one wants to hear that. And maybe no one really does. I don't know. Like I said, there could be five people listening to this podcast right now. But, um, but I've also found that that's not the case, that, 
um, when I talk about my life or talk about the world that people resonate with that. So I've learned to open my mouth and say things and not always gracefully, not always exactly how I wanted to say it or, or what I wanted to say, but I've learned, the only way I've learned to do that is is by speaking, is by using my expression and the inherent thing inside of me that believes that not only do I have a right to what I want to say, but I have a right to think about these things and I have a right to be here. And, you know, it's just a lot of self-esteem stuff wraps up in this. So, um, you know, and it has nothing to do with the First Amendment and the government uh, censoring me. It has everything to do with fear of rejection, you know, fear of losing relationships, fear of using losing friendships, fear of losing followers, whatever it is. Um, there's a fear that if we speak and we show who we truly are, our authentic selves, that um, the world will turn away. And I have learned that sometimes some do. Sometimes some people do turn away. And that has taught me that I don't have to please everyone all of the time, that I can say what's on my mind, what I'm feeling, how I'm thinking about something right now. And that may change. It may evolve. My thinking may change. My feeling may change in the future. I don't have to be held to it. But um, that I... I can express myself and that it's okay, you know, and God, on social media, everyone's expressing themselves these days. And but you know, I take care, I try try to express myself in such a way that doesn't necessarily step on people's toes, unless I'm aiming to do something like that. I still have empathy and want to connect with people. Connection's very important to me. Um, And I know connection's really important to all of you guys, too. And we cannot connect, really, without showing who we really are. And so therefore, we have to be willing to be vulnerable. We have to be willing to be let messiness kind of enter our lives, and the unknown and how will they react? And what will they say? And what will they do? Uh, We won't know that until we do it. And, you know, rejection is painful. But uh, you don't know if you're going to make a connection unless you offer part of yourself to another person. And I don't mean that part of yourself. Oh, you guys are just so really. Um, (laughs) So yeah, I've just and I've been, I've been kind of meditating on this stuff a lot lately, just because just my books coming out in a few months. And, you know, just with the work I do in the world and, you know, and all that shadow stuff with my dad. So anyway, just been meditating on a lot. Well, we had a long chat with our guest today, which was great, and uh, a shorter time with me musing, and uh, I'm losing my brain here now. A little tired, a little spaced out. So I think we're going to end the show now with some music, but first, before we go, uh, I just want to tell you about a couple things that are going on. Uh, Don't know if you're listening live or not, or if you get this podcast, but anyway, uh, before the date, but uh, this Sunday, May 2nd, no, May 3rd, thank you. Um, uh, my Norman Lear uh, interview will be on um, Raw Dog on Sirius XM at 4 p.m. Pacific and 7 p.m. Eastern. And I'm very excited about this. And it'll be repeated on Carlin's Corner throughout the week, too. Um, so I'm just, uh, I have this incredible, incredible conversation with Norman Lear. I decided, so this is a place where I decided to be vulnerable 
I went in, prepped, read his autobiography, which is fantastic. I highly recommend it. Went in, prepped, you know, wrote down everything I wanted about his career and all this kind of stuff. But really, um, the most juicy part of his autobiography is his just revealing his own evolution and his own thinking, um, you know, and his own activism, you know, around what he does with People for the American Way, which is about the separation of church and state, which is another important First Amendment issue. And um, I think it's First Amendment, right? And, uh, but so that morning when I was got up and I was kind of meditating on the whole thing that I was going to go do this interview with him, I really decided that to just to kind of put my notes down and just to connect with him and talk to him about the things that interest me, the things that we talk about on this podcast all the time. So I, I tend to focus on comedy a lot in the serious thing because it is on the comedy channels and that's kind of, you know, why I'm doing that show. But and he and I ended up having an incredible connection. And I ended up talking to him about things that he'd never talked about in public before. And for an interviewer, that's always um, feels really good. You know, it's kind of like you pat yourself on the back in the moment. So I'm hoping uh, you guys have serious and you can hear that. Um, also, just to remind you, I'm going to be at the American Humanist Association Conference uh, on May 10th doing my keynote speech. That's Sunday, uh, Mother's Day. If you're a humanist, if you're an atheist, if you're a free thinker and you've got some cash in your pocket, come for the weekend. Come to the conference. Uh, lots of great, amazing people are being honored. There'll be really groovy people. And I'll be giving a nice little 45-minute keynote speech. Um, and also, it's not officially announced yet, but just giving you a heads up. It looks like I'm going to be at the Lucy Fest, which is the Lucille Ball Comedy Festival. And that'll be the end of July, July 30th, 31st, August 1st and 2nd. And it looks like I'm going to be doing my solo show. So if you're in Buffalo or Pittsburgh or Cleveland, you're an hour or so away from Jamestown, New York, which is where the Lucy Fest is held. And I'll be in a big, beautiful performing arts center doing my show. 700 seats. I need to fill those up. I want to fill those up. So please come, come for the day. There's going to be a groundbreaking on Saturday. Uh, earlier. And then at, I think at three o'clock, I'm doing my show. And then that evening is Jerry Seinfeld doing the show on the same stage. So come, come for like a full day at Jamestown and be a part of comedy and come see my solo show. And um, it'd probably be the only time I'll be in that area for you people, like I said, in Cleveland, Buffalo, and Pittsburgh area. Um, so anyway, I just want to thank everyone for being here today and thank everyone at Smodcast for taking care of me and, uh, Logan, even though he's not here for always uh, pushing all the right buttons. And if you like this podcast, please like, uh, please, uh, go on to iTunes or whatever your, your podcast app is and rate and review me, let people know how you feel about me. And also go onto my website, kellycarlin.com, waking from the American dream. And if you feel so inclined, please donate some money for our efforts here. All this stuff comes out of my pocket and, um, I would love to, um, be able to, you know, have a little support. <laughs> I'm not good at asking for money. Can you tell? I'm reading Amanda Palmer's book. I don't know if it'll help. Anyway, we're going to go out with a song called The Conversation by Afton Hefley. She's also known as The Sangster. So check her out. Um, everyone, you have a great weekend and have a great week and uh, we'll talk next week. Bye.
stacking all aligned around the room when the boxes are all empty and it's nearing half past This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio. Sir, only at Smodcast.com.